to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, and what, what, uh, 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 that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All right, good morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, it's a privilege to be able to uh, speak to you from this passage in John 6, where Jesus makes such a massive, all-encompassing claim. Uh, Really what he's claiming is that no matter who you are or what your background or beliefs, that you will find complete and total satisfaction and meaning in life in him. And that's no minor claim to be making. Because I think that's something that really affects everyone. And I know it because of a theory I have. I have a theory that I want to float with you, and I think it's this. Everybody, almost everybody anyway, talks a lot of smack about McDonald's. But secretly, everybody loves it. And you know it, right? It's in those you know, quiet moments when you're by yourself, and it's 2 a.m., and nothing's open, and you're starving, and you see those like shining golden arches, and you just think... I'm home. Like, or when it's, yeah, there are even times when you know there's nothing else on the freeway that you can eat, and you're like, oh, yeah, we'll just have to get McDonald's. But inwardly, you're just like, yes. Like it's, it's finally a time. Even I remember when I was, I was overseas, I had, I had food poisoning, and after that, I was scared to eat from any of the markets that we were going to. And so when I saw McDonald's, I just thought, it's safe. I could have kissed that ginger clown. I was like, I'm, it's safe. I know I'm not going to throw up after this. Secretly, everyone loves it. And that's why, I mean, look, and fair enough, it's prolific, right? You can go almost anywhere and find a McDonald's. And it's not for no reason either. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Founder. Can I just get maybe a quick show of hands as to, like, who's seen it so I know how much to explain? Okay, well, for the both of you who have, this is going to be really easy. But for everyone else, let's do a bit of background work. They call it The Founder, and it's meant to be kind of an ironic title to the movie because... The guy, Ray Kroc, who basically is responsible for McDonald's as we know it today, did not invent it. So there were two brothers called the McDonald brothers, funnily enough, who kind of came up with this uh, system of fast food, a, a style of kitchen called the, the Easy Way or you know, Easy Serve or something like that, that they patented, um, which was a really quick way of producing a short roster of meals that they'd put together. So it was all their idea. But Ray Kroc, who was a salesman, came along, saw that they couldn't scale the idea and basically, like you'll see over the movie, kind of basically takes it from them and sends it global. But there's a, there's a really telling scene early on in the film, and it's Ray and his wife at home, and he's just discovered McDonald's. He's been to the first ever McDonald's, the original one, and it's blown his mind. He can see the potential for this straight away. He's like, this thing is a gold mine. And he comes home, and he's telling his wife about it, and she starts to check out. 
And she kind of says to him, she's like, Ray, first it was this, and then it was that, then it was selling milkshake machines. You know, we've, we live a good life. When is it going to be enough? That's the question that she flows to him. When is it going to be enough? When are you going to stop? And he just looks at her without having to think much about it. And he just says, probably never. Now, I don't know if that was an actual interaction or something that he really said. But it's certainly, when you look at his life, it's not a stretch to imagine that that was a fair summary of how he saw life. Till till the day he died, he worked and worked and worked. There was never going to be enough for him in terms of the spread of McDonald's globally and how much money to be made out of it. It's not that he would not stop. I would almost say that it was that he could not stop. And that that poses an interesting question. Because if it's the case that someone cannot, simply cannot stop pursuing something, it must be the case that they figure that they do not have enough right now. Whatever that is, whether that's money, satisfaction, meaning, whatever it is, if you continually need more and more and more, the only possible reason is that you do not have enough. And I reckon there is something not just about Ray Kroc's life, but about all modern life in Western countries like ours that suggests that we are on the exact same pursuit. There are a few things that would, that would show us this. We have an inbuilt fear of missing out. There's even a name for it, like you, you might hear FOMO float around, like the fear of missing out. And it's because we're constantly afraid that I don't have enough, I could be missing out, I could be living a happier life somewhere else. There's some opportunity that I need. We change careers fast. We've seen the, the introduction of fast fashion. It used to be two seasons, then there were four seasons. Now there's micro seasons because we're consuming and consuming and consuming. There is something frantic about the pace of our life that shows that we feel we do not have enough. We want more and more and more. And the irony is that here in Australia, we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And so you'd think, if you were to look globally and think, who are the people who would have enough? You would think, surely it would be right here. And yet, it seems the more money that we have, the more frantically we pursue more stuff. And because of this, there are only three possible conclusions that you can come to. The first one is this, that satisfaction is only possible for a very small group of people who have the right kind of personality and amount of stuff to find kind of perfect meaning and contentment. That's one theory, that it is a very select group of people in the world who actually find contentment and have enough. The second one is that it's an illusion and satisfaction just isn't possible. And what we do is we distract ourselves from that truth by buying stuff or doing whatever we can. Even a career is just a distraction from the fact that we know that we can't really find it. But the third one is this, that maybe the answer is hidden in plain sight. That there is an answer to finding meaning and satisfaction, to having something so good that you could say, I have enough, I'm done in this life. And that's what Jesus proposes in this story. As we see the sign that he performs and the teaching that he gives afterwards, what he is saying to everyone there is, I am enough. If you have me, you have enough. But it's not enough just to make that claim. We need to see why it is that he makes that claim and what that would look like to really live it out. And so I'm going to pray that as we dig into Matthew, into Matthew, to John 6, how could I not tell what book we're in after like that many weeks? Anyway... In John 6, we're going to see why it is that Jesus can make this claim and why he has the authority to do it. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the life and the teaching of Jesus. You sent him into the world fully God, fully man, to teach us about you, 
and what it means to live for you and what it means to have the very bread of life, to never hunger or thirst again because we have what life is about in Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would do this work by your Holy Spirit for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, this story in, in John 6 starts with a sign. Uh, and we know that the, the, uh, you may have been with us over the last few weeks that uh, the book of John is divided into two parts. The first 11 chapters are, are basically covering about three years of Jesus' life. He's kind of his full public ministry. And the second half that we'll get into after Easter really covers almost 24 hours, basically, the majority of it. So we have almost 12 chapters that are a bit more dedicated to a very short period. And then this first 11 covering almost three years. But this, this half of the book is called the Book of Signs because it covers all of these signs that, that Jesus does. They're not party tricks. They're not just miracles. He's performing a sign that points to a greater reality. And, uh, and so as we go on, we see each time that there is a sign, we get an explanation of what this means about who Jesus is. Because the whole point of this book of John is that whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, today you're in the right place because this book is to teach you to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in Him, you'll have life in His name. And if you're a Christian, you never stop believing that and never stop going deeper into that truth. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a massive claim worth investigating. So the story kicks off in John 6 like this. We'll see it will come up on the screen. John 6, 1-4. And it says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because, the sign, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So this place takes place in a, in a place called the Sea of Galilee, which is a massive inland body of water. And it's still there, obviously, in modern-day Israel. Uh, and even the places that are named here of Tiberias and Capernaum later on are places that you can go to. Tiberias now is kind of a, a resort town, so there's a few more water slides than there probably were in Jesus' day. So that's probably not why he was heading up there. Uh, but we're told that, uh, that he was heading up there uh, to the Sea of Galilee after having been in Jerusalem. So if you are with us last week, you know he healed a paralyzed man in Jerusalem and he moves a long way north up to, to Galilee to this area called Tiberias. And a huge crowd is starting to follow him. So all the way up there, people are going up there. They're following him. And we're told that he went up to a mountain. And this, if you, if you know the geography of that area, which I'm sure you're all are very familiar with that, you know that's not really surprising because the, the Sea of Galilee is 212 meters below sea level. And so it's basically surrounded by cliff faces. And so they've pulled into Tiberias, and just near there, Jesus kind of pulled away up to a mountain. And it seems like he's maybe withdrawing from the crowds, but as we'll see later, it doesn't seem to work. But there's something else that John, the writer of this gospel, mentions as all this is happening. He's mentioning the details about where they're going. He's heading up to Tiberias. There's a crowd following. And then he just kind of throws in there, now the Passover was at hand. What does that mean? He's just throwing a, a, a casual detail out there. Well, the Passover was an incredibly significant date for the Jewish people. In fact, it still affects us today. If you've wondered why the date for Easter is so annoying and changes every year, pay attention because it's because of Passover. See, Passover happens at the first full moon after the March equinox. Now, if you don't know what that is, I didn't either, so I had to look it up. 
But equinox just means equal night, and there are two times in the year where day is as long as night. It's in March and in September. And after the March equinox, the next full moon, they, uh, Easter will tend to land there because that's when Passover happened. And Passover was a Jewish celebration where they remembered the rescue that God had performed in Egypt. The, the, uh, the Israelite people were slaves for 400 years under Egypt, and then God raised up a man called Moses to go to Pharaoh, who was ruler of the known world at that time. Um, and he was to go to him and to say to him, let God's people go, and if not, there are going to be consequences, and there were. We see in the book of Exodus that there were ten plagues, and every time God threatens to come through with a plague, Pharaoh says, all right, I'll relent, and then he says, nah, I'll hold on to the people, and then they face the punishment. And it happens again and again and again until the tenth time where God threatens to visit upon Pharaoh the very thing he did to the Israelite people, which was to take the life of the firstborn son. He's not mucking around. But he says anyone who kills a lamb, a pure lamb, and puts the blood on their doorframe, says death, the angel of death, will pass over that house. It will not take any life. And so they do. And those who hear the warning of God, the angel of death passes over their house. And so every year the Jews would celebrate at that time of year after the March equinox the Passover, to remember that because of the sacrifice of a lamb, God would pass over, death would pass over them. Now the significance of this is in John 1, when John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, sees Jesus for the first time, he says, look, there is the Lamb of God. He's connecting Jesus with Passover. He's saying, he's the one whose blood is going to be shed on behalf of others so that death will pass over them too. So just keep that in mind because John's brought our attention to this just before Jesus does this sign. And so it's around the time of Passover and this crowd has followed Jesus up to a mountain and look at what he does when they come up. In John 6, uh, sentence 5, we pick up the story. Lifting up his eyes, this is Jesus, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves... And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So all the fish as much as they wanted. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When they saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. I love the first part of this story. So they go up on this mountain. This huge crowd goes with them. So it's 5,000 that said men there. That's not including their families and everything else. So we're talking about an enormous crowd, over 10,000 people. And I love what Jesus says. He turns to Philip to wind him up and says to him, what are we going to do with all this stuff? And the, and the text tells us because he knows what he's about to do. But he's pulled Philip and he's like, there's so many people. What are we going to do? And Philip's like, I don't know. A denarius was a day's wage. He's like, 200 days wage would not be enough to pay for this. And Jesus is like, hold my beer. And then goes and does this thing, right? He's like, he knows exactly what he's going to do the whole time. But he's saying this. You think, why would, he, why would he do that? Why is he winding him up? 
He wants them to get the gravity of what's about to happen. And it's helpful for us. I mean, like, as we think about that, you think, yeah, of course, how would you feed a crowd that large? And I love little, little Andrew as well comes up and he's like, I've got a little mate. He's got five loaves of bread and two fish. Why he thought that was even worth mentioning at the time, I don't know. But Jesus takes it. He gives thanks and praise. And then he starts distributing the loaves. And they just keep going and going and going. It's like that room in Harry Potter where everything touches a thing and then becomes two things. I don't know, it's as good as I can describe it, right? But they just keep multiplying out. It seems like he distributes this bread and this fish and they keep going. And as if to drive the point home about how much power he has, at the end of it, there's leftovers to clean up. Just think, if he's controlling, in, in control of all of this, if he knew what he was going to do, he even did that just to demonstrate that it wasn't a sparing portion. Like, this is way too much. So Jesus provides all this food for these people who've come up to hear him teach. What do we do with that? What's the point of this story? Is it about providing food and alleviating poverty and hunger in the world? Well, Jesus talks plenty about that topic, but I don't think that's what he's on about here. I don't think, I don't think that's what this sign is pointing towards. Is it kind of saying that, um, well, look, Jesus is the kind of, He's the kind of God who, when, when we bring our small, faithful acts, he can, turn, he can make abundance out of very little. And I think that, that is a biblical principle that you can get from other passages, but again, it's not really here in this text, is it? See, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing as to why it is that he did this. It's not that those other interpretations are wrong or unbiblical, but we need to stick with what this particular passage is saying about who Jesus is so that we don't miss what's going on. Because Jesus makes the point so that people won't miss what's going on. Look at what he says in John 16, 15 to 21. This is just after this has happened. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because, of a strong, because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land, at the land to which they were going. So Jesus withdraws to a mountain again, and we're told why specifically he does it this time. He withdraws to the mountain because they were about to make him king. And you're like, what's, what is so bad about that? I mean, who wouldn't want to be made king? Like, they're about to make him king. He's like, oh, guys, please, anything but that, right? Why is he pulling away now? Well, if you were with us in the second week, you know that Jesus says early on when someone brings a request to him, he says, my hour has not yet come. The hour in the book of John always refers to the hour of his death. And we know that Jesus has a very deliberate plan about how it is that he's going to die. And he knows that when he announces himself as king, so when he comes into Jerusalem and they receive him as a king, it's kind of the final tipping point before the Jewish leaders decide, that's it, we're done with him, we need to kill this guy. He's being too much of a threat. And so Jesus knows that if they were to try and make him king now, it's going to speed things along. And so he withdraws to the mountain away from them. But then we get this strange kind of little insertion, another sign, one right after the other, where he's away on the mountain, and so he's, he's up here, and Tiberius is down here, 
And it's like the disciples were waiting and waiting and waiting. And like, we can't wait for Jesus anymore. We need to go to Capernaum, which is kind of just north across the lake there. And so they just take off. And it's almost as if Jesus is like, he's praying, he's communing with God. And he's like, oh my gosh, is that the time? And the thing that almost, that almost drives this miracle is that he's running late. So he just skates across the lake. I was like, that is, a, that is an amazing motivation for a miracle. But I think as we see when he gets to the boat, that's not really entirely what's going on there. That Jesus has a plan here. After having just demonstrated his power in feeding the 5,000, he demonstrates his power in heading across, really through a storm, walking across water to his disciples. And when he gets there, he says to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Because presumably they would have been afraid about two things. One, that the storm was going to take their life. Or two, that this guy who has the power to control storms and walk across water may be a dangerous person to be around. And so he reassures them, and they get in the boat, and they go up to Capernaum, and here's where the conversation gets tense. Look what happens when they arrive up there. In John 6, it says, in in sentence 22, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the next day, so they've they've been in Tiberias further south, the disciples have headed over, Jesus just cut across the water, joined them in the boat, and they're now in Capernaum. But the crowd that was there the day before, that had just been fed miraculously, are not happy to leave things alone. Jesus had snuck away when they were trying to make him king, and so they've, they've taken boats and they've headed across to Capernaum and they're seeking after Jesus. And they want some answers on things. And so in sentence 25, they ask him a question. It says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. So they come to Him with a question. They say to Him, Teacher, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they've joined the dots. They were with the crowd. Jesus slipped away. They saw His disciples leave on a boat. And they get there the next day and Jesus is suddenly in Capernaum. And they're like, how did that happen? When did you get here and how? I love what Jesus does here. You see it again and again in the gospel. Someone asks him a question, and he just doesn't answer it. He's got something else he's going on. They say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he's like, stop. Boring. Let me tell you about something else. And just charges on with whatever he feels like. So here he ignores their question completely, and he says, I just want to tell you something. I know why you're seeking me. You're seeking me because you got some free food. You came up on that mountain, you got a free feed, and you're following me because that's really what's first and foremost in your mind. He says, if you were smart, if you, were, if you really saw what was going on there, you wouldn't be looking for more free food. If you were really smart, you'd be thinking, does this guy have the power to give eternal life? There's a guy who can create something out of nothing right before their very eyes. They're like, if you know someone who's got that kind of power, you're asking the wrong question. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but it's a similar principle going on with kids and Santa. 
We're not sure when the right time is. Tell, there are any kids in there, everyone? Okay, that's good. Just seeing the coast is clear. They're all out the back. Um, but um, the, um, we're not quite sure when the right time is going to be to tell our kids that Santa's not real. Sorry if I just blew up your life there, but somebody had to do it. You're an adult now. But um, the, for, for our kids, it's a, it's a tricky thing because we know that like, they like to talk and it's likely that they won't just ruin a few other Christmases. They might ruin many. So it's, it's a tricky kind of topic to get to. But it's funny for kids, like, if, if they really were taking in this claim about Santa and they really thought it was real, you'd think they would ask for something better than presents at Christmas, right? Just, just let me give you some of the basic stats for Santa. So he's overweight but can move miraculously fast. That's, that's one thing to get your head around. Not only that, but he has somewhere in the order of, of 4 billion toys or something that he can fit in some kind of magic bag that he can distribute around the world. He is also able to travel somewhere near the speed of light in order to deliver all these presents. He has some kind of stealth vehicle by which he can distribute all of these and fly under every radar globally. Uh, he has the, the power to read minds and to know what kids are thinking. He even comes to town. To, you know that, how the song goes, right? You better watch out. You better take care because Santa's coming to town, right? So he has all this power and yet all kids can think of is, yeah, could you use that great power just to get me a new toy for Christmas? Anything like this. If they were really thinking it through, that's not the way you would respond to it, right? Now, of course, Santa isn't real, so we don't have to stress about you know, doing the math on whether or not he could do this, that, or the other. But the truth is, if someone had that kind of power, it would be foolish to ask them to use that to do something so insignificant, right? That's why it's a kid's fantasy. It's just a kid's story. And Jesus is saying to these grown men and women, he's saying, you know what, you're approaching this thing like kids. You just saw me provide food for an impossibly large crowd, and all you want is maybe some more food? It's like, you guys have got it all wrong. It's like, you should be asking the question, is this the guy that can solve the biggest issue we have, the issue of death? Is this the guy who has that kind of power? And he says this to them, to them and so they respond. They kind of take the bait a little bit. In sentence 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus is saying, if you want eternal life, if you want the answer to life right now, if you want the cure to the one thing we all need the cure from, from death itself, it says all you need to do is to believe that Jesus is the one who can do it. That's the answer. And that's why he goes on to make this profound statement in 635 when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is claiming to be the answer to everything. He's saying, I, I did this thing over on the mountain, not so that you guys could have another lunch so that you'd last another day, but so that you would know that I'm the one who can give life to anyone, an eternal life, indestructible life. I have the answer to life and meaning and everything in between. It says, if you know Jesus and believe in him, you will know that he has the power to do this. And How? In this last section, we see how it is that Jesus can claim to have this kind of power. Look at what he says to the crowd. John 6, 48-51. Doubling down on this idea of the bread of life, trying to draw their minds from the miracle to something, a greater reality. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven 
so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says he can give life because he will give his life. Remember that John mentioned that all this was happening around the time of Passover? And Jesus is demonstrating this so that they will know that they are standing before the one who, the only one who has ever lived, who has the power to lay down his life, that death might pass over anyone who believes in him. In fact, in the Passover that's coming up, he will die, that's where we celebrate Easter, to demonstrate that he really could lay down his life, that he might give life. He's saying to them, look, that, that bread thing, like the, the feeding of the 5,000, the 10,000, however many were there, he's saying that was nothing. All that did was get you to last another 24 hours. I have, I have bread that if you eat of it, you will never go hungry again. You have the answer to life, death, and meaning solved in him, and he'll do it by being the Passover lamb. That he would lay down his life, pour out his blood, so that we would not face the punishment of God for our sin, that we might find forgiveness in him and new life in him forever. Jesus has the answer. And so he's saying to them, why would you just deal with the symptoms rather than dealing with the actual issue itself? You kind of get it like this, right? If you, if you had a terminal illness and a doctor said to you, we can either give you incredibly powerful sedatives and anesthetics so that you feel none of the symptoms or we can cure it entirely, which one would you go for? Of course you would want the cure, right? It makes sense. If there was a cure available, you would want that because it deals with not only the final problem, but all the symptoms before it as well. Jesus is saying to them, don't seek after bread that doesn't last. Don't look, after, look, don't look for things in this world to make your life more comfortable so that you can forget the fact that one day we die and we need to deal with that. Jesus is saying, I, I can deal with all of it. By laying down my life, not only will you have life in eternity, but you'll have life right now and life to the full. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. That is a massive claim. Now, if you're here and unconvinced of who Jesus is, I would urge you to do something about that today. These are not casual claims that he's thrown out there. But more than that, they're not backed up by nothing. Jesus isn't asking us to believe just in the hope that this is something that he can do. He was a real historical person. But as we look at the account of his life, we see details and witnesses and places and names. This is not mythology. This is not something to casually flip off. If Jesus can do this, he's promising, yes, yeah, satisfaction for this life now, the answer to our ultimate problem to death. And so if you are unconvinced, I would urge you to look into this deeply. And if you are here and a believer, I want to ask you this question. Do you really believe this? When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, whoever eats of the bread that I give him will never hunger and never thirst again, do you really believe him when he says that? Do you believe that that is absolutely true? Because what that means then, if you're a follower of Jesus, it means you have everything you need right now sitting here in this room. There is nothing more that you need in order to find full life in Jesus. Now, when you put it that way, I reckon that does start to cause us to rethink it a little bit, doesn't it? So I was thinking about this, right? I was thinking, if, 
like thinking on this whole idea of, of satisfaction, what it means to have found meaning and purpose and, and full happiness in life. If, if Jesus' claim is true, that's what he's saying. What is the difference? What, what should a life look like that's different you know, if someone doesn't have Jesus or if they do? Because the truth is, even if you're a follower of Jesus, there will be times when you hunger and thirst, right? There will be times when you want more, when you feel like, you know what, the life that I have in Jesus isn't enough right now. So what does it mean for the Christian, the follower of Jesus, to have this bread of life that we would never hunger or never thirst? I was taking over my mind, and I, I, think, I think this is the, the easiest way that I could explain it. Try and think about it like this. Say you were on a property, so you owned this property. It was yours, the title deed was completely yours, and a surveyor, I don't know who does these things, geologist something, right? They, they survey the land, the details are not important, so, right? It's a metaphor. Um, but uh, you find out that you're sitting on the largest gold deposit in the world, right? As far as all of the ones that we know, on your property is the absolute largest. If that were the case, and you were short on money, you would know what to do, right? You would mine deeper into the property that you had until you found some gold. You wouldn't buy another property. You wouldn't buy another gold mine because you know you've got the biggest one, right? It would mean that... Even at times, if you were short of money, you would know what it is that you need to do. You stay where you are and mind deeper. I think that's what it means to have Jesus. That it means that in life, you know that the answer is not the next thing or moving on or moving beyond Him. That actually all the answers are there in Jesus if we could just see it clearly enough. It means mining deeper in Him rather than moving properties. Now again, if that's too kind of broad or hypothetical for you, Think about it like this. If you're married and your marriage is hard right now, you know that you have everything you need to be fully happy in Jesus right where you are. You don't need another marriage partner. It's not that you've made the wrong choice. It's not that you need to move on or find someone new or a change in your circumstance or whatever it is. That right now where you are, you have enough in Jesus. That means even if your, your state is unhappy, if you're in singleness, it means that you have everything you need in Jesus. Now I know as a married man, that's tricky for me to say, right? That's a difficult thing to say. But it's not my claim to be the bread of life. It's the claim that Jesus makes. And I reckon there's a, a massive truth to this because the cure to a difficult marriage or the cure to, to unhappy singleness is to know what we have in Jesus. Oftentimes we think, if I could just change my circumstances, I would have the kind of life that I need to have. And yet the claim in Jesus is that if you know Him, and He's dealt with the issue of death, you have everything you need right now. And just look at the end of this story, at what His disciples say to Him. In John 6, 66-69, He tells them, he gives them this story about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which is meant to offend people. But he's talking about communion, which we'll share a little bit later on. But he's talking about the fact that he will lay down his life for his people. And after this, look at what happens. In John 66 to 69, I'll read it out for you. It says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away too as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know 
that you are the Holy One of God. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. That doesn't mean that life isn't difficult or hard or doesn't throw things at us that we weren't expecting. But what it does mean is that we know where the answers are, that Jesus alone has words of eternal life. That if he has solved the issue of death, that he is where the meaning of life is found. And so we're not to move on. We're not going to find it in the next thing or in a change in circumstances. The grass always seems greener, and yet we have everything we need in Christ. And so I'm going to pray knowing that that is a simple and yet deep truth that the Spirit would give us strength to know it, believe it, and experience it. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are from everlasting to everlasting, that you are the one in whom we find deep satisfaction, that you are the one in whom all joy and life and meaning is found, that you are the one who has dealt with death finally in Jesus. And that we aren't to find answers by moving on to other things or finding new things or getting more and more stuff, that we have everything we need in Christ to have full life even now, even in the midst of sadness and difficulty. And Father, we pray that you would teach us this truth more deeply and that we would live it day to day, knowing that you are good and right and that your word is true. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, as we do each week, we're going to take a moment to reflect on the teachings of Jesus and then we're going to respond in song after that. Take a moment to reflect.